this was a very hard week for me in regards to study. Um, sometimes, man, God just, it just flows. And other times I get in the way, and I think a lot of times in the study, I just find myself digging and digging and digging and digging. It's kind of like digging, but the, the, the sand just keeps falling in on you. You just feel like you're just not getting out. Um, but uh, through it all, uh, God is faithful. So we're just going to pray that he'll use, I believe, what he's given me, um, finally, is powerful, and it's exactly what we need. So um, we're going to just pray that he'll guide it. So last week we were in our message, which is called Family Matters. And uh, I'm, I've got a little tick. Today's called Family Ties, just so you know. Um, TV shows for old people, we know we're family ties. Young people are like, what? What does that even mean? Michael J. Fox, hello? All right, fine. Um, anywho, uh, last week we were in Family Matters, and that was Joshua chapter seven, or 17, verses 2 through 6. And what we were doing was we were continuing our study, kind of looking at um, the tribe of Manasseh. This is the half of the tribe that actually chose to stay in the promised land. And what we realized was the division that took place when they were split wasn't based upon uh, family loyalties. It was actually based upon loyalty to God. One was seeking the Lord, one wasn't. And what, we re- what it revealed to us was the fact that honoring God sometimes meant separating from family. And we, it led us into a discussion to talk about how our faith many times can become a point of contention in our, in our own homes, in relationships with people that we have. And what we saw was the fact that Jesus spoke on this subject in Luke chapter number 12, verse 51, and he says this, he says, suppose ye that I come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. He says, listen, faith in me is going to cause division because some will stand with me and others will stand stand with the world. And so we recognize the perspective that's taking place here. And what we have to realize is that with God, our relationship is quite simple, right? He considers either either us a friend or an enemy, right? It's a love or a hate scenario. It's like cold or hot. When we think about Revelations 3.16, when Jesus is speaking to the Laodicean church, this is his rebuke. He says, so then faith, he says, so then thou, thou art not, he says, then thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. You've not decided which side you're on. You're trying to ride down the middle of the road. And he says, he says, because of that, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He's saying, you know what? Your middle of the road attitude makes me sick. And what we have is a world full of people that unfortunately are trying to be Christians and living in the world simultaneously. So what it comes down to is our loyalty. Where is our loyalty lie? God wants us to be his friend, right? The Bible says to be the friend of God is to be the enemy of the world and to be the friend of the world is to be the enemy of God. And we have to decide kind of where where we stand. Then we next figured out that honoring God meant honoring women. And this was, took place because what happened was there was a, a group of sisters that came to, uh, to Joshua and they said, hey, listen, you know, our dad's dead, but we want to get his inheritance. And at the time in the, in the world at this time, that would have been an unheard of thing. And Jesus or, or God speaks to him and says, listen, hey, that's what it's going to that, do that right now. You're going to do that. Not only that, you're going to carry that on from here on out. And so what we saw was this unorthodox uh, instructions that God gave. And we looked at how God has honored women throughout scripture. And we actually landed up, ended up or landed on uh, husbands and wives and God's instructions to the husband of how it is he is supposed to love his wife. And he said, what you'll do, if you want to understand how to love your wife, model the way that I love the church. I love it sacrificially. I love it, Lord. It is an unconditional, unconditional love. Then the last thing we looked at was the fact that honoring God meant honoring his word. And we went back to that example where Joshua was hearing from those women and that unorthodox instructions from God, which was to give them 
this, this land. And what we saw was that he didn't balk. He didn't question it. He just, he just said, okay, done. And so what we, see, what we have to learn from this is the fact that Joshua received instruction from God. He didn't doubt it. He didn't question it. He just did it because he knew that if it was God's instructions, that it had to be right. And see, when you and I have instruction from God, when God's word speaks to us, and sometimes we may not agree with it, we may not want to hear it, but guess what? That's irrelevant. It's not about whether one went hurt or not. What we have to know is the fact that it is true, and we are to do what God tells us to do. And if we will do it, listen, we can guarantee that it's the right thing to do. God's ways are always best. God's word is always, always true. And then, the, the, so, so that's where we ended up last time, kind of talking about that. But what we're going to do today is we're going to continue talking about that tribe of Manasseh. We're going to pick back up in 17, verses 7 through 13. Again, keep in mind, as I reference Manasseh today, I'm going to be talking about the half that chose that chose the, the promised land. But what we're going to be looking at as we dig, dig into this, because this is going to be kind of a complex read. When we read the verses, you're going to be like, yeesh, you'll understand kind of why it was daunting. Um, but what we're going to be looking at ultimately is relationships and the power of influence, right? We're going to be looking through it through the eyes of Manasseh and kind of recognizing the influence that Manasseh has on his brethren. So as I said, the message is called Family Ties. So let's pray real quick and then we'll jump into it. Thank you, Lord, for today. For this word, I do pray. Thank you uh, for the opportunity I have to to preach it. God, you know my great feelings of inadequacy, uh, Lord. But at the same time, I know you're in it. So, Lord, I'm just thankful. And I ask God that you just guide, direct, and lead. I know you've spoken to me, uh, Lord. Uh, I'm just praying that you would now speak through me. Uh, Lord, let the words that I share be the ones that you would choose, not me. Lord, help me to get out of the way and disappear. That you might uh, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to throw a map up. You have it on your on your sheet as well. And what I want to help, um, so as we read through this, again, this is kind of technical stuff. It's going to be locations and things like that. I want you to just be able to, uh, to, to follow along. So we look here in Joshua 17, verses 7 through 13. It says, And the coast of Manasseh was from Asher to Michmathah uh, that lieth before Shechem, and the border went along on the right hand unto the inhabitants of Entipua. So he's talking about the, let's throw up the, the map. So he's talking about the borderline here, right? He's talking about this. So if we look at where Manasseh is, they're here. Manasseh actually is basically located in the dead center of Canaan. Here's going to be Ephraim down below them. There's a river right here. So he's talking about, first of all, he's talking about the coastline there. And then he says in verse number eight, now Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We talked about how Ephraim had some of their cities in the land of Manasseh. And so we notice here, verse number 9, And the coast descended under the river of Cana, southward of the river. These cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh, referencing that same thing we talked about before. The coast of Manasseh was also on the north side of the river, and the outgoing of it were at the sea, saying that the river will empty into the, into the ocean, or the Mediterranean Sea. Southward, it was Ephraim's, and northward, it was Manasseh. So he's saying that the south uh, bank was Ephraim's, and the northern banks was Manasseh. And the sea is its border. And, the, and they met together in Asher on the north, and Issachar on the east. So he's saying, listen, when you look at that northern border, what you're going to see is the northern border. You can't see it up there. Um, for whatever reason on this map. I don't know why it doesn't show up. But above that, you should be able to see on your map, you'll see that Asher and Issachar are up to the north of Manasseh. Southward, it was Ephraim's, and northward, it was Manasseh's, and the sea is the border. Uh, so verse number 11 says this, And Manasseh and, uh, had in Issachar and in Asher 
Beth Sheehan and her towns. And I want you to pay attention to these names. I know it just seems like we're just reading a bunch of random junk, but I can promise you it's not. These names are important, and it's important. If we'll, if we'll pay attention, I'm going to show you something in this. These names are important. So it says, in Iskar and Beth Sheeran and her towns, and Ibleem and her towns, and Dor and her towns, and the inhabitants of Endor and her towns, and the inhabitants of Tanak and her towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, even three countries. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Verse 13, yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxen strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did utterly, but did not utterly drive them out. And if we pay attention to these verses, what we'll see is there's kind of a split in it, okay? From verses 7 to the first part of verse number 10, what you're going to see is it's actually talking about the relationship of Manasseh with Ephraim. Once we get to the back half of, of verse 10 down to 13, what we're going to find is it's actually going to be about the relationship between them and Asher and Ish and uh, Issachar. So if there's the, the break there, but the, what's going to be important is because we're, ultimately we're talking about relationships, okay? This is what this is relevant to. Remember that though we're going to talk about them by name, these are massive groups of people, but at the same time, they are still a family. These guys are all related. This is one massive group. But we're going to see as we're going to examine through Manasseh, we're going to see and this is how the ties work out, the connection that they have. It's going to see, first of all, our first point is that they're going to be tied together through their resources. Secondly, they'll be tied together through their relationships. Third, they'll be tied together through their faithlessness, then tied together through their disobedience to God. Ultimately, what we're talking about, again, is the power of influence and relationships, considering it from Manasseh's point of view. But what we're going to first look at is the relationship with Ephraim, and we see that in our first point, uh, tied together through their resources. Verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 are referencing the Kana River, okay? The Kana River, you're going to look on your, on your map real quick. You're going to see the Kana River actually starts here in the mountains, and it's going to flow from springs out to the, to the Mediterranean Sea. And so we see this connection with the Kana River. But we also saw the connection that it was made in ref reference of that city of Tapua, and it referenced those cities that are actually in the lands of Manasseh. And this is an unusual thing. There was a message that I preached several weeks ago called Subjugating Sinfulness. And there was something that I taught you in that message that actually, now that upon studying it, I figured out it was wrong. So I'm going to give you a correction. Um, I, I told you that those three separate cities that were in that were actually the cities that were set aside as cities of refuge, but that's not actually the case. They are actually just cities. There are three cities of refuge, but they're three cities of refuge for the entire country of Canaan, and there's three cities for the, for the left side and three for the right side. So I apologize for that. Just happens to the best of us. But I wanted to make the correction, but understand what's important and what's relevant for us today is the fact that there's a unique relationship between Ephraim and Manasseh, where Manasseh literally has land that he's given up so that Ephraim's cities can sit in his territory. So that's an unusual thing. Now, what we're going to find out also as we read along is that that's not the only place where this takes place. This is only, not the only instance of this. What we're going to find is Manasseh has a similar deal. Only this time, when they are in Asher and they're in Issachar, what we find is now Manasseh's cities are in their land. So there's this very weird kind of blended territory stuff going on with Manasseh. We'll get into that into our second point. But what I want to focus on is Ephraim. So with Ephraim, they had that weird relationship in regards to their borders, but there's also something else going on. We saw that, that river that was mentioned, the Kana, the Kana River. Now what's unique about that is the fact that what the Kana River does is it really kind of ties the two together in regard to a resource. Now, what's interesting about the Kana River, if we compare and look at it where it is on the map, okay, 
if we look at it, what we realize is the fact that, if we put the map back, there you go. This, for, for, the, for Ephraim, what you need to realize is the fact that there are no other water sources really to them. They're virtually landlocked. Okay? They don't have access here. So this is their main water, their main tributary. And so what's relevant about that is we look at this uh, principle is the fact that there's a really cool picture that's going to show. I'm going to show you on the map. You can't see it on the, on the screen, but you'll be able to see it on the sheet that you have in front of you. What geologists tell us is that the ultimate source of the water that comes from the Connor River feeds down from the Sea of Galilee. Okay? It comes out of springs that are in the mountains. Now, what's relevant about that is, is there's a spiritual picture in this. Okay? With the Sea of Galilee is a picture of abundance. It's a picture of life. If you notice, a lot of the ministry of Christ took place right there at the Sea of Galilee. When he feeds the 5,000, guess what? They're on the shore of, the, of Galilee. All these things take place. So there is this beautiful representation of life and abundance in the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee then feeds into the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River is a picture of judgment. And what we find is it is the dividing line between the promised land and the wilderness, right? So surrender versus rebellion. And so we find this picture running through Jordan. Now, as the Jordan comes down, we choose, right? We choose Christ, we choose rebellion, or we choose, we choose sub, uh, or surrender. We choose life or death, right? Ultimately, God's going to make that determination. But what's interesting is you look at where it all, where does the Jordan River end up? In the, the dead sea. So life, judgment, death. Physically, in the real world, showing it. But what's happening that's so cool about this is the Connor River is drawing its water from the source of life. How cool is this? So now they're coming together. They're meeting. Now we know that, they're, that the, so the, as the water runs through this Connor River, it's coming down from, from, from Galilee. But what's interesting is, remember it told us that that one, one bank was owned by Manasseh and one bank is owned by Ephraim. So they're going to come to the same source of life, right? They're going to join or come together at this place where God is going to provide for them in the physical way. And there's a picture in this. But what we find is the fact that as they gather together, it's going to be a place where they're going to have a shared blessing, right? They can drink from this water. They can fish in this water. They can do all kinds of things, but they're going to receive from the same source. And what we think about is, and we compare this to you and I, right? When we come to church, when we gather around God's word in God's house, and we come to spiritually drink of the living water, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, from his word, guess what we have? We have a shared blessing. We have an opportunity here where we come and guess what? We're refreshed, right? We get strengthened. We get fortified. We get encouraged. We get, we get uh, united as a body. We come together. We meet at one source, and that source feeds all of us. It provides for us. And so here's this beautiful image of Manasseh and Ephraim coming and meeting at this source of water. And what's cool, when Jesus referenced himself, when he meets the woman at the well, what does he, sell? What does he tell her about himself? Right? He describes faith in him, and he says in John 4, verses 13 to 14, Jesus answered and saith unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, speaking to the physical water, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. It is a spiritual water that will fulfill you, right? And so Jesus Christ is a picture of true life. He's a source of true, true life. And so we recognize the fact that, listen, you and I, we have it available to us. Any person who wants it has it available to them. All of us can come and we can drink from the water of God's goodness. 
And, and this is not in your notes, but it should be. Boy, oh boy, I, this morning I was doing my review and I was like, how did I leave this verse out? Uh, Psalm 42, you might want to make a note of that. This, if there's ever one that was relevant to what I'm talking about, it's this. And that just shows you where my brain was when I did not pick this up. But we're going to read Psalm 42, you real quick, just verses 1 and 2. Psalm 42. Listen to the relevance of this. And it says, and the heart. This heart is translated, that's a deer, okay? So it says, and the, as the heart panteth after the water brooks. Hello. So panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Man, thirsting for God. When we come, you know what? We can come and we can feel like, you know, we're not that thirsty. We should be panting and thirsting for God's word every day because I can promise you that the world spiritually is a desert and it should be drying you out. And if you've gotten accustomed to it, boy, that's a dangerous place to be. If you go, you know what, I come and I don't really have that. I mean, I don't need to read God's word. I mean, church, yeah, whatever, we'll sing. It's nice, good to see the people. But we come and we don't receive. Man, you are being parched to death in the world. I can promise you're getting sucked dry of the things of God. And we come here and guess what? God fills us back up. Jeremiah 29, 13, he says this. He says, and ye shall seek me and find me. When? When shall, he says, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. It's a heart issue. If we're not thirsting for God's word, it's a heart issue. There's something wrong with our relationship with God. We must realize that God wants to draw us. He wants to speak to our hearts. That's why the Bible has been preserved throughout time. Why, do we, why can we hold this Bible that's been around for thousands of years? How can we hold the truth of God's Word in our hand? Because God chose to preserve it from the destruction the devil tried to bring over and over and every war and every kind of pestilence and destruction he could possibly bring. And guess what? He could not. Could not because God gave a promise that he would preserve his Word. And so when we gather and his Word is preached like Ephraim and like Manasseh. Listen, we experience a shared blessing. There is a shared dependence. There is a shared experience, a relationship that is formed here. See, the relationships here are special, right? I love you guys. I mean, I love... Bless him, Lord. <laughs> I love you guys. I hurt when you hurt. I'm joyful when you're joyful, but man, I'm telling you, these relationships are special. And if we don't foster them, it's in trouble, right? This, this purpose of the body, it's not just about getting together and, and enjoying ourselves. It's about coming together as a body to worship our Savior, Amen. our true Father. Yeah, that's right. And this relationship, this family is important. And yes, we come together and boy, you know, our, our thirst is fulfilled. We, we receive from God. But there are people in this church that I can tell you, just based upon the numbers of how things work out, that this is the only thing they drink all week long. Now, if it was your physical body, I just drink once a week. <laughs> That's all I need. I'm good. It's ridiculous. We'd never do that. Right. We're in the midst of a spiritual war. Amen. And we're trying to survive on one drink a week. That makes no sense. So they would have been regularly going to that river to supply their need. And you know what? As body of, as a body of believers, that's what we need to be doing. Not only does Jesus refer to himself or is he referred to as the water, right? But also recognize what he says in John 1. What we learn about him is the fact that he's referenced as the water, but he's also referenced as the word. When you see the capital W-O-R-D, it's not just capitalized because it just seems fun to do. When you see it capitalized, what it means is it's referencing Jesus Christ. 
When you see later on, you see where you'll see a rock. It'll say the rock. And it's not, not at the beginning of the sentence, but later in the middle of the sentence, you'll see rock capitalized. It's a picture of Christ. When you see these capitalized words, that's what it's saying. And I'll prove that to you in a second. John 1.1 1, 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice all three of those are capitalized. But so it's saying the Word was God, okay? And now I go, okay, well, how do I prove that that Word is Jesus Christ? Verse 14 says this, and the Word, capital W-R-D, was made flesh. Where was God ever made flesh? Notice this, and dwelt among us, made flesh, and was on the earth. And we beheld his glory as the and, and uh, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Okay, so the Son of God that was on earth in flesh, full of grace and truth. I think that pretty much narrows it down. We know who it is, right? So the word capitalized W O R D. That is Jesus, Jesus Christ. So just like we gather on Sundays to have our spiritual time with God. Listen, can I tell you this? It's not just about gathering around the Word. It's not just about having time together here, but it's about the Word of God, man. Because you know what? You should be thirsty for it every single day. We should be desiring God's Word. We should be consuming God's Word. He's made it available to us. And the problem is that we're not in it. We are cheating ourselves. We're in the midst of a spiritual battle. And we are dehydrated. We're struggling. Coughing dust. (laughs) in our spiritual walk. And yet God says, you know what? It's not because there's not a canteen in your house full of the most refreshing, amazing water that will hydrate you like nothing else. And we walk by it and we go, (coughs) (coughs) don't have time for that. It's crazy, right? The devil does not want us in the word of God because he knows what it will do. It will set us on fire for the things of God. And he desperately does not want that to happen. And just like the Connor River united Ephraim of Manasseh, as it gave them life, can I promise you that God's word will unite us as a people? Listen, if we will make it our source of life and we will drink from it daily, you know what will happen? We'll start to see the world through the same eyes. We'll start to deal with the life, life's adversities and all the things that are come. We'll deal with it from a different perspective. And it'll unite us in our mission. It'll unite us to support and love on one another. It will strengthen us like nothing else can. It's not about being in church. It's about receiving what's being given to us. Because I can tell you there's been plenty of times in my life when I sat in church, but because my heart wasn't right, it would not have mattered how much you preached and how much Bible you used. I wouldn't have heard a word of it. I'd have sat there and gone... Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. No one would know. But in my own heart, like water off a duck's back, the things that needed to land did not land because guess what? I did not have ears to hear. And so if that's where you're struggling, recognize that it's probably because you're dehydrated. You need a little bit of Jesus. Number two, we see that they're tied together through their relationships. Now what's happened is we're shifting away from Ephraim. Now we moved into that relationship with Asher and with Issachar. And what we see here is last week we talked about the complexity of relationships. We talked about human relationships. And now we all have a lens, right? We see the world through whatever our experiences have been through life. And recognize this is true not only for us individually, but it can also be true for a group, right? We can 
respond as a body to certain circumstances and situations. And what we have to keep in mind is, like I reminded you before, listen, this is ultimately a family. It is a massive family. There's millions of them, but there's a lot, and they are, but guess what? They're all family. They all have a history, but they also have their own individual histories as well. And as we consider Manasseh and this group that's now in the wilderness, or that's in the promised land, we have to realize that there's something unusual about Manasseh, okay? As I talked about before, there's those weird blended relationships, those weird blended borders. The only common denominator in all of those weird blended borders is Manasseh. For whatever reason, they're the only ones that we see this with. No other tribes does it show up. It's only only with them. Now, we can only assume that potentially maybe Manasseh's leaders were some wheeler dealers, man. Maybe they were quick on their feet, and they're like, hey, negotiating, right? And they're having conversations. For whatever's happened, they have somehow, in some way, worked out some pretty good deals for themselves. They've got six cities in other countries. They've made a, 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 a they've acquiesced to, to, um, to Ephraim, but there's probably a self-serving reason for that. And also, I want you to consider this. If we go through the numbers, okay, I want you to pay attention. Look on your map. Look how big Manasseh is. Manasseh... If you could see the whole thing, Manasseh is the second largest land, uh, land mass of any of the others. Judah is first, and then Manasseh. But what's interesting, now this gives away this, this is what I'm trying to figure out why this would happen. Now, their size of their land was supposed to be determined based upon the number of people. Now, if we go through this, the census that was done one year, well, actually it would have been six years before this took place. We went through the numbers, and we look at Numbers, numbers 26, okay? Numbers 26 tells us that Manasseh had 52,000 soldiers over the age of 20. This is how they would do their, their census. So that's there, 52,000. That's before the split, okay? So here they have 52,000. Asher has, 50, has 53,000. Issachar has 64,000. So Manasseh, after being split still ends up with the largest piece of land in all of Canaan, in the dead center of everything. And so it's something unusual going on. And we see this blending between Asher and between Issachar. And what's interesting is verse number 11 ends this way. And it says, even three countries. So there's some weird bond taking place between Manasseh and Issachar. And Asher. And what this tells me is, listen, there was, uh, uh, there was influence, right? Manasseh has some type of influence in this scenario. And how all this ends up and how it all is revealed, we don't necessarily know. But what we do know is there's something going on here that bonds and unites them. Because see, they are seen as a unit. Asher, Manasseh, and Issachar, even three countries. They've got this mutual commitment, this relationship that has been formed. And what's happened is they've found common ground, right? Places where there can be agreement. And they formed a unique relationship inside of the family. Okay, there's the family as a whole. And now there's this unique relationship between these three in the midst. And so what happens? Why did God put the, create the tribes? Why did God gather them together? Why did he bring them to Canaan? It was about accomplishing his will. Okay, so I want you to realize this. Okay, so why does God assemble the church to accomplish his will? So the relationships in the church should be for the purpose of accomplishing God's will. Manasseh has created relationships. Every relationship, if it's godly, should be for the purpose of accomplishing God's will. That's what we need to understand. So if you consider the body of Christ 
as believers, we come together. And what do we do? We develop relationships. They're unique. They're special. There's common ground, places that we find where we're, our lives connect, maybe through experience or whatever's gone on. And then what happens is we, we find these uh, connections that we have, and we just develop these friendships or these relationships that are unique within the family, right? Now, what we have to remember is what's the purpose of our relationships? So what's the purpose of our friendships? Is it just about social, socializing? Is it just about having fun? Is it just about talking about things that we enjoy? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 says this, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. We're supposed to be comforting one another. And notice this one, and edify one another, even as also you do. Edify. The word edify means to build up. An edifice of a building is what's built on the front. It's the edifice. That's what's built. So what you and I are supposed to be, our lives are supposed to be building the people around us. So our friendships have a purpose. It's not just about entertainment. It's not just about being, uh, having shared interests. No, it's actually supposed to be about us being an encouragement to our brother or sister. What kind of friend are we? Now, it appears that Manasseh is a self-serving or has a selfish reasoning behind the relationships that they have formed. But see, God tells us that we're supposed to be selfless. We're supposed to be Christ-like. Like, listen, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, talking to the church. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Hello. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We're not supposed to be concerned about how things impact us as much as they are others. We're not supposed to be the, the, the subject of our, of our focus. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form, he says, listen, here's your example, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He doesn't want to make himself important. He doesn't want to be seen. He wants to simply be there to serve and took upon him the form of a servant, a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So here's a servant's heart. This is our example that we're to follow. See, Christ did not come to be served. He came to serve. And see, that should be the heart that we as believers, that as a church, that should be what we bring to the party, right? We should come saying, hey, listen, whatever needs to be done, I'm here to do it. Whatever requirement you have, hey, I'm here to fulfill it. Can I tell you this? There is no place we should have a, a, a sign somewhere. Not that this is a problem in this church, but there is no place for selfishness in the body of Christ. There is no place for selfishness in the body of Christ. Jesus is the ultimate picture of selflessness. And as Christians, that's exactly what we should be. And so as a church, recognize our relationships are key. Notice what he says here in Mark 10, verses 43 through 45. He says, but so shall, this is Christ speaking, but so, show out, but so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest, he shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2 continues in verses 13. It says this, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, and do all things without murmuring and disputing. 
Well, I'll go do it, but you know what's the last time I'm doing? I can tell you that just because I mean, I'm the last one. You know what? I, I, I was here cleaning. There was nobody else here. Where'd nobody else go? Oh yeah, I see how it is. Okay, fine. I'm taking out the trash. But you know, I'm gonna be my... Hey man, I've been there. I've been there. That's the heart that I had. I was serving in a church, and guess what? I felt unappreciated. I felt like I was dealing with a lot of stuff, and you know, I'm just like, and I'd walk around, right? I wasn't saying anything, but I was saying something. You know what I'm saying? And my heart wasn't right. That's for sure. And God had to convict me. And one of the things he said, you know, Colossians 3.23, do all that you do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And the heart that what God told me in that moment was that verse came to my mind was, listen, if you're doing it for anybody else other than me, don't do it. Quit. If you're doing it for me, shut up and get to work. I was like, okay. (laughs) Yes, Lord, going to do it. Right? And that's what we have to realize. Notice how it continues. Verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless. So he said, listen, if you will do these things as I've told you without murmurings and disputings, now listen, then you'll be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You've got a people around you that, guess what, not only the lost people, but the, but the saved people that are being infected by this, cur- by this wicked generation. He says, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So listen, he's telling you need to be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters and an encouragement to this world of who Christ truly is. And so what we have to ask ourselves, are we lights amongst our friends? Are we lights amongst the world? Are people encouraged when they spend time around us in their walk with God? Are they encouraged? There's a years ago, about 30 years ago, gosh, I'm old, probably longer than that. I can't even, even think about it. But years ago, there was a man that my wife and I worked with. And every time he walked into the room, this is what he would do. Okay, you're, you're in the room and you're just doing your thing. I'm coming in. And you're all just, nobody's like, oh, what's wrong? And you're just like, because every day, all he would do, bleh, bleh, bleh. I mean, you're just like, good night. I can't remember what we called him. We called him the Vortex or something. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 and I was just like, dude, oh, my soul, man. I can't even talk to that guy. He was like a black hole sucking all the light out of the room, all the life out of the room. Right? And so I'm telling you, not that you guys or any of y'all are like that, but I'm just saying that's an extreme example. But listen, we impact the people around us, whether we talk or not. What are we displaying? Are we encouraging people to walk with God? Are we encouraging people to be better Christians? Are we encouraging them to seek the things of God? Or are all of our conversations just wasted on stupid stuff that doesn't mean anything? Remember, the relationships we have have a purpose. This should be the dynamic that we're to bring into the world, into our earthly relationships, that we're to be light. We should be a positive, godly influence on those that we interact with. Every single person that touches our life, we should impact them positively. Because whether we realize it or not, we all have influence. Every single one of us. We see Manasseh's influence in Asher and in Manasseh. But can I promise you that every single one of us, no matter how if you've been saved for 30 days or three weeks, or if you've been saved for 30 years, you've been a member of this church since the time we founded it, it doesn't matter. Every person, no matter who you are, you are influencing the people around you. We don't live in a bubble. We don't live isolated. No matter what, our life spills into the lives of other people. And if we are not careful, we will do the wrong things. We can be a bad influence. Just like we can be a good influence in someone's life, at the same time, we can also be a bad one. And this brings us to our next point as we follow along with Manasseh. Listen to this. Verse 3, or number 3 says this, tied together through their faithlessness. 
And notice that verse number 12 said this. It says, Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were reading about the Jebusites that were in Jerusalem. And guess what it said? It said they could not drive them out. And what do we do? We looked at that and we said, well, why can they not drive them out? Because God himself gave them a promise that said no one, no one would be able to stand against them. No one would be able to oppose them. We saw, I mean, it was again and again and again, he said that, but in Joshua 1.5, there's a reminder. He says, there shall not, can you make it more clear than this? Notice how he says it. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As long as you're on this earth, if you're walking with me, no one can oppose you. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. There is no one that should be able to oppose them. So right here it says that they cannot do it. That tells us they are not walking with God. They are depending upon themselves. And can I tell you, as soon as you shift your dependence off of God and onto yourself, you are headed for defeat against any enemy that comes against you. You are setting yourself up for destruction. And let me show you how all this plays out as we read further into this story. Now, remember I told you the names of those cities was important, and it is really important because when you start to realize what's going on, the cities actually become the key to the whole thing. Judges chapter 1, pay attention to the names that were left unconquered. Judges one twenty-seven. neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean, boom, Tanak, boom, Dor, boom, Ibleam, boom, and Megiddo, boom. All of those just happened to be in Asher and Issachar's land. Not his land, in their land. But the Canaanites would dwell in that land. So these are the cities that Manasseh had in Issachar and Asher's land that he was responsible for. And because of his lack of faith and failure to commit to God and to his brothers, now Asher and Issachar are left to deal with pagans and wickedness in their borders. Manasseh could have set an example by defeating the Canaanites, but instead he created a mess that his brothers will have to help him try to clean up. And see what happens. We see the power of compromise. See? So we think, I'm not influencing anybody. Nobody's watching me. But can I tell you, just the smallest compromise in our walk, smallest compromise in our attitude, our, 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 our faithfulness to God, it spills over. It bleeds over and it hurts other people. It's just me. It's just me. No. There is nothing isolated that you do that's against God that does not impact the people around you. I'm telling you, bad decisions that we make, rebellion that we display, it hurts everyone that's close to us. Recognize the borders, the connection, these, all these pictures, right? God's showing us us, family, the connections that we have together. And Manasseh's failure is going to be their failure because that faithfulness is going to transfer. Number four says this, tied together through their disobedience to God. Verse 13 said, Yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxing strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute. Notice here, it doesn't say just Manasseh. It says the children of Israel. Now others are getting in on it. And it says, And put the Canaanites to tribute, made them slaves. God said, Drive them out. And did not utterly drive them out. They made a conscious choice. We will defy God. 
we will defy God. Notice what Judges continues. We'll reread verse number 27 through 35. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and her towns, nor Tanak and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor her towns, nor the inhabitants of Iblim or her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns. But the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Verse 28 says this, And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly destroy them. Here we go. So the brethren rally together, okay? They go, hey, there's a problem. We're going to get together and we're going to do... Not what God told us to do, which is to drive them out. No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to go get us some slaves. I've heard that's a good thing to do. We're going to learn how to use this wicked people that we're supposed to drive out. We're going to make them a part of who we are. And this rebellious, disobedient example spreads like wildfire. Notice what happens, verse 29. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. There's one tribe. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalal, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. There we go. Zebulun's in on it. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko and the inhabitants of Zidon and Alad and Atzib and Helbab and Aphek and Rahab. They've got even greater failure than, than Manasseh did. That's even more cities that, were not, that did not fall. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. The Asher's in. And now we got, guess what? Neither did Naphtali. Naphtali, hey, I'm going to get on this. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Beth but he dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth became tributaries unto them, slaves again. Verse 34, the Amorites forced the children of Dan. Dan is their southern neighbor in the eastern or the western quadrant of Manasseh. But notice here, Dan deals with, a, with an enemy that comes against them, the Amorites. And it says they would not suffer them to come into the valley. So now Dan is in the midst of a battle. They're in the midst of a fight. And notice who comes to help. But the Amorites would dwell in Mount Eris and Ajalon and Sablim. Yet the hand of the house of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, they're going to come help. They prevailed. Now, did they drive them out? No. What does it say? So that they became tributaries. Oh, we'll come help you, Dan, as long as we get something out of it. Get ourselves some slaves. You see this? So the thing that God created and combined and brought this family together, that was to create, to do God's will, to do God's purpose, has now been twisted to self Serving selfish desires. Instead of accomplishing God's will. And you know what we can tie it all back to? Family ties. Family ties. Churches are not destroyed from outside attacks. They're destroyed from the inside. Through family ties. And so we've got to be extremely careful. Because you know what? Connections, relationships, and mutual influence, man, that was assembled to accomplish the will of God, which is righteousness. And what happens to it? It becomes selfish because of selfish decisions, faithlessness, and disobedience. What God created to accomplish His will has become twisted into a vehicle to serve human desires. That's the picture we see with the Israelites. And you know what? It mimics the church of today. What was created by God, united and formed for the purpose of doing His will. Guess what? It's been twisted. 
the vehicle God created to get the gospel to the lost world has been hijacked. You know how many churches in this town right now don't give a gospel presentation at all? Hundreds, if not thousands. And the very message that Jesus left us to give is not given in a place that's supposed to be where he's worshipped and honored. And we're supposed to be doing his will, not our will. And people go and they get self-help messages and they're taking all kinds of references of historical stories and all these cool things that you can hear. Boy, you know what? But bottom line is the gospel's left out. There's a humanitarian... I mean, think about the, 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 the Salvation Army. Listen to that name. The Salvation Army. It's about saving souls. And yet the gospel's not a part of their mission anymore. It's about supplying the physical need. And it's the sad, sad truth the vehicle God created to do His will, unfortunately, could get twisted into something else. And if we're not careful, if we're not very careful, what God created, the church, can become a self-serving club for saints. And instead of people coming here and being encouraged through the relationships that they have with their brothers and sisters to serve and honor God, sadly, they'll be influenced by the people around them to be more worldly, to be more godless. And so we've got to realize that it's important. Our relationships are key. I want you guys to have relationships, but we've got to make sure that they're the right kind of relationships. Let's make certain that our hearts are focused on the right things, that we're trying to accomplish the will of God and not the will of man. Because this broken world desperately needs Christ. This, this broken world desperately needs the love of God. But because of distraction and things that we think are important that mean nothing... The work of God goes undone. And there's churches right now where people are slapping each other on the back, celebrating, hands in the air, and they're when they're going to walk out, they're going, man, that was a great service. And they'll go right back and there'll be no change in their life. They won't be focused on anything that's gospel related until the following Sunday when they go in, man, I bet that music's good. I can't wait for the show. Spotlight's amazing. I love how that guy preaches. Oh, it's awesome. I feel amazing when I leave there. Hey, I'm sorry if sometimes you leave here and you're like, man, I feel like I got beat up. Hey, me too, dude. All week long, I'm just like, wow, pow, 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 pow. I'm like all bloody at my tails at my desk. I'm like, geez, please, Lord. Because the truth is, we're a mess. We're Laodiceans in the midst of a world that is trying to consume us. And guess what? We fall prey to it. We fall prey to it. And when we should be focused on God, there's people in this church right now that are on their phone. Because you know what? This isn't important. That breaks my heart. But it's a reality. And you know what? God has a purpose for this church. It's not about fulfilling self. It's not about us slapping each other on the back. It's about realizing that we're on a mission and that God's time is growing short. And God's blessed us with the opportunity to have influence in people's lives. And can I tell you, it all goes back to family ties. We can be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters and help them to become soldiers for the cross or we can be a distraction that draws them away from the mission that God's given us. We all have influence. Let's make certain that it's a godly one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of who you are and what you've shown us. I do pray, Father, that you'd help us today. Help us, Lord, to walk with you. Help us, Lord, to surrender to your perfect will. God, I know that you have a purpose and a plan for all things. And Lord, the adversities we face even now, God, you know what? They have a purpose. I don't like them. Uh, Lord, I don't want them. But God, it's the reality. 
So Father, I do pray that you would speak to us, speak, God, guide us, help us, Lord Jesus, to have ears to hear your truth. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to walk through your perfect and beautiful will. Thank you, Father, for the truth of the word. And I pray, Father, that you guide us now. Help us as believers as we leave this place to realize that we have a purpose and that our relationships, God, should be godly, that our influence should be one that draws people closer to the word. Thank you, Father, for the truth. And for those that today, maybe you're here, maybe you're listening to this recorded, maybe you're watching this, and you say, listen, I don't know where I stand with God. Listen, I can understand that. 21 years ago, guys, I was lost as a goose in a snowstorm, man. I had no idea who Jesus was. All I knew was, you know what? There's a God in heaven, I guess. But I wasn't raised in church. I didn't spend my time around godly people. I didn't know anything about anything. And someone cared enough, to about, cared enough about me. I cared enough about my wife to share the truth of who Christ truly was. And I came to the realization that I was lost. On my own, I was going to bust hell wide open. But there was a God who loved me in spite of myself. And it was his death on the cross that gave me a way, a bridge over a burning hell to walk into the arms of God. And it was only through that that I could receive the truth. There was no good I could do. There was no religious ceremony I could be a part of. It was nothing more than a broken heart surrendering to a loving God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I did not understand all that I'd done, but I knew in that realization that I was on my way to hell because I didn't know Christ. And if that's you today and you want to receive the gift of God, there's no magic prayer. There's no ceremony that we're going to do. It's nothing more than your heart reaching out to a loving God. He loves you right where you are in spite of yourself, same way he did me. And he took me from being broken and lost and afraid of death to being somebody who knows and walks in the peace and love of God. You can have that as well. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. There's no magic in the prayer and there's uh, no ceremony to it, as I said. It's just your heart reaching out to a loving God. He loves you right where you are. And as he calls out to you and you feel the draw, all you have to do is surrender. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive the gift of God. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry for my sin. I believe that you died for me and that you love me in spite of myself. I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how to come into my heart, to come into my life, and to forgive me of my sins. I put my faith in you, and I let go of the world. Help me to walk with you, Father. Help me to be that Christian that I know I'm called to be. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen. Head still.